If you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me in John chapter 5 and uh, continuing to walk through and wrapping up this chapter uh, as we continue to walk through the gospel of John. And uh, the theme of our text this morning is on trial, on trial. Uh, God has blessed us all greatly. Um, it is very possible that if you were to walk into our homes that you would maybe see multiple copies of God's word. Uh, maybe they're heirlooms for some, or maybe they're just maybe some Bibles that we've collected over the, the different years, but we have God's word is so accessible. Uh, now uh, you can have the Bible on your phone and, and, it, and it's right there in pretty much every translation that you can imagine. It's there and uh, it's at our fingertips. And so God is so gracious in that we have his voice, which is his word, uh, so close to us. And it's amazing. And, and I think about the gift of the word and I think about specifically uh, the gospel accounts in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, how these are such a gift to us as believers because they give us a front row seat to the life, the ministry, the teaching, and the impact of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh. And so we see this impact and maybe perhaps over the years we've been able to walk through these gospels. You got Matthew's gospel. And if you remember Matthew, Matthew was a tax collector <laughs> in a tax collector's booth and Jesus invited him to come follow him and his life was forever changed. And we see in his gospel account that when he writes this gospel, he's writing to a, a, a primarily a, a Jewish audience and he's communicating how the Old Testament scriptures how they all point to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah that they were waiting for and longing for. We see John Mark's gospel, the gospel of Mark. And uh, for him, his gospel is primarily written to the Romans. And, and if you've ever read the gospel of Mark, it reads fast. I mean, it, it is, it is action packed and it is, it is uh, the, the shortest gospel uh, and, and, and it really almost matches the lives of the Romans whose lives were so fast paced and, and how, uh, God's word meets people again, where they are and how he communicates to the Romans that Christ is the servant King who came to lay down his life. One of the primary passages there in the gospel of Mark is found in chapter 10, verse 45, where it says the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you see Luke's gospel, Dr. Luke, he's a physician. And you almost see that coming out through the gospel, how God worked through the personality of Dr. Luke and this orderly account. And as you read about how he continues to provide this orderly account of how Christ is the Messiah and how salvation is found in him and him alone. So you got Matthew, Mark and Luke. And then we are walking through the gospel of John and began this journey at the start of the year. And we're just kind of walking through and, and John's gospel where, where Matthew's was the primary audience initially was for the Jews. And you got John Mark's gospel to the Romans. You got Dr. Luke's gospel to the Greeks. And, and here's John Mark's, or excuse me, the John's gospel. His gospel is for the world. Jew, Gentile, it's for all people. And he's so crystal clear with why he has written this gospel account. And he tells us at the end of his gospel account in John chapter 20 over in verse 31, here's what John, the disciple says about his gospel account. He says this, he says, but these things are written so that you may, you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you would have life in his name. And so his whole purpose 
is that is that the world would would understand and see that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that you will believe by believing in him, you can have life and life in his name. And so everything that John writes about in the gospel all goes to support this over this kind of like overarching purpose, which is there is life and eternal life only in Jesus. And there's no other source for everlasting life. And so he's writing these things so that you may know that Jesus is the son of God, that he's God in the flesh. And that really leads us to John chapter five, which we're finishing today. But John chapter five opens with Jesus coming into Jerusalem and he was there for a feast. We don't know which feast it was, but he came uh, into Jerusalem as a feast. The Bible says that he went to a place called the pool of Bethesda and that this was a pool where multitudes of, of, uh, of sick people would gather multitudes. And so Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda and he sees this man who has been paralyzed for 38 years of his life, almost four decades. This man has not had the ability to walk. The Bible teaches how people would literally just step over him day after day after day. And on this particular day, Jesus goes to Jerusalem. He goes to the pool of Bethesda and he sees this paralyzed man and he invites him to stand up and to walk. And he does. He obeys the word of the Lord for the first time in almost 40 years. He stands to his feet and he takes up his mat. And as he does, the Jewish leaders are there and they're seeing what's happening. And instead of celebrating what is going on in that moment, they rebuke him in that moment because Jesus is intentional with everything that he does. And he heals this paralyzed man on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was a day set aside where Jews would rest and they would observe that, that God is God and that they are to rest. And, but, but they needed more. God's word wasn't enough for them. So they came up with 39 man-made categories of work. And these are categories of things you can't do on Sabbath. And if you do them, it's considered work. And one of those is, is carrying. You can't carry. And so when he picks up to carry his mat, they're like, whoa, you can't do that on the Sabbath. That's work. That's work. Now, Jesus is intentional with everything he does. He healed this man specifically on the Sabbath for a purpose. Obviously, he meets a physical need. But the rest of John chapter five is Jesus having a grace and truth conversation with these religious leaders about who he is. And he's revealing his identity to him. And it reads a lot like a courtroom scene. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom or maybe been to court lately. Uh, but I've been to a courtroom a couple times and it's just different. It's a different kind of room. As you're walking to the courthouse, you can almost tangibly sense, uh, a, a weight as you enter in this place. And as you specifically walk into the courtroom, and you see this room and this is a room that is a, it's a room of order. It's a room of power. It's a room of authority. It's a room of respect. As you look around this room, you realize that decisions that are made inside this room have in just, just profound consequences and ripple effect in the lives of those who find themselves in there. 
And so you'll see in the courtroom, you see a place for the jury. You'll see a place for the defendant. You'll see a place for the plaintiff. You'll maybe see some places for those who are maybe uh, support family members or just, just there to observe what's going on. And you see these places where people are seated, but there's one seat. There's one seat that's, that's kind of, it's almost like everything else is arranged around that seat. And it's called the, it's where the judge resides. It's where the judge presides. And there's only one seat and there's one judge. And that judge alone has the power and the authority to make a ruling considering whatever's being heard on that day. And what Jesus is doing in this grace and truth conversation is already multiple times leading up to verse 30 where we're jumping in. He has communicated that he is the righteous judge. That he alone has the power to pronounce guilt and to pronounce innocence. That he is communicating to these Jewish leaders that, 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 that he and the Father are one. That they are equal in authority, that they are equal in power, they're, they're equal in mission, they're equal in praise. And he is communicating this authority and this power to them. And the world, the world, everybody in the world has an opinion about Jesus. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. And, and, and every religion has an opinion about Jesus. Every person, maybe you live, work, and play with, has an opinion about Jesus. Everyone in this room, everyone listening, you, you have an opinion about Jesus. And in a lot of ways, Jesus is on trial. And in a lot of ways, he always has been. John 5, where we're at, reads a lot like a court scene. Because we're going to see the words witnesses and we're going to hear the words testify multiple times throughout the text. C.S. Lewis says it this way. Every person has to decide who Jesus is. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is the Lord. He's one of the three. And many people will say Jesus is a good teacher. He's a prophet of God. He's a good moral person. But the thing is, you can't be a good teacher and say the things that Jesus said. Because he is communicating to these Jewish leaders, I am God. God and the Father are one and he is the righteous judge. And so what, what you're going to see in the remainder of John five is this main idea that Jesus provides the world with overwhelming evidence to place their faith in him. Overwhelming evidence. So let's look at verse 30. The Bible says this in John chapter five, verse 30. I can do nothing of my own. Jesus says, as I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. And we may stop right here and be like, what did Jesus just say? Did he just say his, his word wasn't enough? But we know his words are more than enough. That Christ has nothing to prove to anybody. The fact that he's having a conversation with these religious leaders is an act of grace. The fact that God would reveal himself to us is an act of grace. He, is, he, he owes nothing to anybody, but yet in his grace, he reveals his nature and he reveals who he is through his word. And he's doing that to these religious people. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So what's happening? What's happening is he's meeting these religious people where they are. 
And I love that about Jesus. Jesus meets people where they are. Where, where were Peter and Andrew when Jesus invited them to follow him? They were fishing. Where in the world did Jesus meet a weary Samaritan woman? He met her at the well in the heat of the day. Where in the world did Jesus meet Nicodemus, a religious leader? He met him at his request at an evening hour. Where did Jesus meet Paul? Paul was on his road to Damascus to persecute believers and Jesus met him right where he was. Where did Jesus meet Zacchaeus? Up in a tree. Where did he meet this paralyzed man? At a pool of Bethesda, laying lame for 38 years. Jesus meets people where they are. He met me as a 10-year-old boy after a church service one night. My life has been changed ever since. And so be encouraged. Jesus is pursuing a love relationship with you. He loves you and he meets you where you're at because here's one of the lies of the enemy. And it's one of the, I believe the, the most uh, powerful lies that he will whisper in the ears of all those who don't have a relationship with Jesus. And that is this is who are you to think that you can have a relationship with God? You're not ready for this. Have you seen yourself? Have you seen your life lately? Have you seen the decisions you made lately? Here's what you need to do. You need to go and you need to get your act right. You need to clean yourself up and then come to the Lord where Jesus meets people where they are and where they're at. We can't clean ourselves up. He meets us where we are and he cleans us up from the inside out. He meets us where we are. He's meeting these Jewish leaders where they are. Why? Because they love the Old Testament scriptures. They treasured the Old Testament scriptures. They treasured the law. They memorized the law. They recited the law. They chanted the law. They sang the law. Like the Old Testament scriptures are, are, their, are their treasure. And here's what the Old Testament law says over in Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. The Bible says that a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime, for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So this is why Jesus is saying, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He's meeting them where they are. And he's going to give them not just one witness. He's not going to give them two witnesses. He's going to give them three witnesses. He's going to give overwhelming evidence to the fact that he is God and that he is worthy of their faith and their trust. So the first witness to the stand kind of the, the figurative stand here in this courtroom scene is John the baptizer. John the baptizer. If we're looking through the Bible and outside of Jesus, is there somebody you could pick to hang out with for the day? I would love to hang out with John the baptizer. He was a long haired, camel hair wearing, locust eating, honey eating, uh, forerunner for Jesus. And in a lot of ways, he just seems like a, just a, so bold and courageous for the Lord. And so what Jesus says in verse 32 is he says, there is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. 
And I think that's just a good reminder for us to be encouraged. Why is Jesus having this conversation with these religious people? Because he desires them to be saved. Why is God sharing his truth to us, revealing himself through the word to us? He desires us to be saved. He desires relationship with us. The Bible says this in verse 35. He, speaking of John the Baptist, he was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So his first, his first witness to the stand is John the baptizer, an eyewitness. There's probably no more powerful testimony than an eyewitness, All right, You can't tell somebody they didn't see something they saw. Even John, the disciple who wrote this gospel, he wrote a couple other letters found towards the back of the New Testament. And here's what John, the disciple says over in first John one, one. He says that which was from the beginning, which we have heard and which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And in other words, he's saying, listen, I have touched Jesus. I have seen Jesus. I have been with Jesus. Let me tell you about this Jesus and John the Baptist, this eyewitness. He was there. He was there. He was the forerunner. He was preparing the way for the Messiah. That John the baptizer was the one that said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That John the baptizer was the one who said in the next breath in John chapter one, verse 30, he said, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. In other words, he's speaking to the fact that Jesus is eternally preexistent. And so the Jews in Jerusalem, they heard about John the Baptist. And the Bible says they rejoiced for a little while. Why? Because they're looking for the Messiah. They're waiting for the Messiah. And so they send a group out there to John the baptizer to see what in the world's going on. And they were excited and they were rejoicing until they found out who John the baptizer is pointing to. And they see Jesus. And Jesus didn't quite fit the mold of who they think the Messiah of the world should be. They're looking for the one who's riding in on the white horse. They're looking for the one who's going to overturn Rome and, and, and release them from the tyranny of Rome. But Jesus doesn't fit their picture of what the Messiah should be or who the Messiah should be. So what did they do? They rejected him. They rejected Christ altogether. Jesus describes John as the lamp. He said he was a burning and shining lamp. Again, they hold, these Jews hold the Old Testament scriptures. They know the Old Testament scriptures. They memorize them. They chant them. They sing them. They pin them in their heart. And they would remember the Psalm, what the Psalmist wrote over in Psalm chapter 132, verse 17, where the Psalmist says this, I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. Who's the anointed? Jesus. That word anointed means Messiah. He's the only one who can give salvation. But there is a lamp. And he's saying John was the burning, shining lamp that John the baptizer is the forerunner for Jesus. And so Jesus doesn't just stop there. The evidence, witness number one, John the baptizer. Witness number two is his works. Verse 36 says this, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me. Now, every miracle has two purposes. I mentioned it just a moment ago. Every miracle you see that Jesus performs meets a physical need, 
But there's a second purpose of every miracle. And that second purpose always is to reveal his identity as God. And so there is, in a very real sense, he meets a, 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 a temporary physical need. But it, there's an overarching purpose to every miracle, and it's to reveal who he is. It just happened at the pool of Bethesda. We got, we got, it, it helps us to kind of remember, he just healed a man who had been lame for 38 years of his life. And now he's having this conversation. You can't deny his works. Nicodemus, the Jewish ruler, in John chapter 3, a few weeks back, here's what Nicodemus says in John chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. The Bible says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nobody can do what you do, Jesus. We know God, we know God is with you. Like nobody can do what you did. If we fast forward in redemptive history from this moment and we, we, we go beyond the resurrection of Jesus into the launch of the early church. In Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching on what's known as the day of Pentecost. And he's preaching to a city filled with, with religious people. And here's what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, you all know what Jesus has done. You've seen the works. And so, again, Jesus has called witness number one, eyewitness John the baptizer. He has called witness two, and that it is works. But there's a third witness, and that is the witness of his word. Verse 37. The Bible says, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. What he's teaching them is like, the, listen, the scriptures, again, that you, you memorized. The, the scriptures in the Old Testament that you're super familiar with. All those Bible stories and all the things the prophet taught. And everything, all the songs the psalmist wrote about. All those things that you've treasured up in your heart. He's saying, they all point to me. They all point to me. In Luke 24 on, on Easter, a couple of weeks ago, we walked through a passage in Luke 24. This was... Resurrection Sunday, the tomb is empty and two disciples were on their way to a place called to Emmaus. And on their road to Emmaus, Jesus comes up to these two disciples and here's what he says to them. He gives the first Bible study after the resurrection. And here's what he says, Luke 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, Moses, what did my, Moses wrote? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. Moses wrote Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Jesus is saying all of those books point to me. All of the prophetic writings that you've treasured in your heart, they all are about me. I have a children's, uh, it's called the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, a devotional for kids. I love how Sally Lloyd-Jones says it this way. She says, now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules. 
telling you what you should do and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Amen. Amen. Other people think the Bible is a book about heroes showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some really big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They even get afraid and run away. At times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one that he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the story is it is true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and came to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby and every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle, the puzzle that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see the beautiful picture. It's all about him. He's revealing himself in his grace to these religious leaders. It's all about me. And the problem was this. The problem was, is that these religious people knew a lot about the word of God, but they did not know the God of the word. And I think if we were to take that truth up and we were to walk it into the 21st century, where we find ourselves sitting today in a, in a worship service, is that it is possible to have all the knowledge in the world and to be able to destroy people in Bible trivial pursuit and have all kinds of answers. But the problem is, is when that knowledge does not transition from the head into the heart, because Jesus came to change us from the inside out. And when you have a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ, that's exactly what happens. He changes us from the inside out. And when the knowledge transitions from our head into our heart, this is where that life-giving relationship with Jesus changes us and changes us forever. And so here is Jesus presenting overwhelming evidence don't just take my word, take the word of John the baptizer. You all know him. You know what he was teaching. You saw him. You sent a group of people out there to listen to him. You rejoice for a little while. Not just that, but the miracles, the works, even the, the, the most prominent Jewish religious leader named Nicodemus says, we know nobody can do what you do unless God's with them. And then not only that, he communicates how the scriptures are all about him. And in light of the overwhelming evidence, look at verse 40. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And I have come in my father's name and you, you do not receive me. If another comes in his name, you will receive him. He's speaking prophetically there of the antichrist who will, who will come ultimately in his power and his name and, and, but the Bible says, verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes 
from the only God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if, my, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is a sobering close to this conversation. It's been saturated with grace and truth. God in his love is, is revealing himself to them. And he's telling them, you, you've rejected me. He's saying, you, you put your hope in Moses. What did Moses do? Moses wrote those five, those first five books of the Old Testament, the law. And the law is, is perfect. The law is important. The law is to be treasured. But the law shows us what it looks like to walk in obedience to the Lord. But what it also does is it serves as a mirror to show where we fall short. Because if you, if you put our imperfect, sinful lives beside perfection, what you become is overwhelmed at our sinfulness. And that's what the law does. The law says, uh, this is what obedience looks like. And then when, when you use it as a mirror to look at your life, you ever look at the mirror and you see something that's out of place in your life or out of place on your face even maybe. And, uh, and, and, and that's what the law does. We look at the law like a mirror and we see all the areas of our life that are out of place. That fall short. Paul describes it like a school teacher. In other words, the law has this incredible ability to show us where we fall short <laughs> But yet the law has nothing, no power to change our hearts. That's why Moses points to the Messiah, because the anointed one will come and he will live a life of perfection, perfect to the law for us. He will be placed on a cross and he will be crucified and he will resurrect from the dead on the third day. And when you place your faith and trust in him alone, he will gift you his righteousness. Because we can never stand on our own. So what were these Jewish leaders doing? They were placing their hope on their ability to keep all the rules. Their self-righteousness. And it may not look exactly like this, but I think that's... If you talk about, if you talk to people and you're having everyday conversations and you ask the question, so how are you going to make it to heaven? Like if you believe, if you believe that, that heaven is real and it is, and you believe that hell is real and it is, how, 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 what's going to happen? What's this going to look like? And most of the time, the answer will circle somewhere around uh, the answer of, well, well, I'm a good person. But really, that's really exactly what these religious leaders are saying. They're saying my salvation is rooted in my goodness and in my righteousness and my ability to do everything right. When I think if all of us are completely honest, we are keenly aware of where we fall short on a daily basis. That the Bible really is true when it says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So even on my very best day and even in our best hour, we still fall short of the glory of God. And Jesus is trying to gracefully get their attention and he is communicating, listen, your place in your faith in, the, in, in your own ability Moses was pointing to me. Like I'm the only worthy object. I'm the only worthy person who can rescue you from your sin and grant you eternal life through a relationship with Jesus. 
And so as we look at this text, we see that the things that we place our hope in reveal our need for Jesus. And if we are placing our hope in anything other than Jesus Christ for our salvation, we are missing the mark. And, and I don't say that based on what I'm saying. I'm saying it based on the grace-filled, loving truth of God who is revealing himself to the world and who is communicating that I am God and in me alone there is life. And this is what, if you go up 40,000 foot and you see why is the disciple John writing this? He's writing this so that you may know that Jesus Christ is the son of God and that by believing in him, you will have life in his name. He's the only way. He's the only way. And this is what John chapter five is teaching us. It's amazing that he healed a man who had been paralyzed for 38 years. It's even more amazing that he and his grace is revealing himself to us and inviting us to a life-giving relationship with him. And he's the only one who can give life. So as a believer, perhaps you're a believer in the room, you have a relationship with Jesus. Can we just not get over the fact that God and his grace has revealed himself to us? He met Andrew and Peter on a fishing boat. Met that Samaritan woman at a well. Met Zacchaeus in a tree. Met me as a 10-year-old boy after church in 1989. And so what does that look like? May we never get over the fact that God has revealed himself to us and gifted, gifted the word to us. And may we be like John. Jesus is on trial, right? He's on trial today. It could be if you're a believer where you live, work, and play, you may feel as a believer your life is on trial. If people are watching your life, you say you have a relationship like they're watching. They're, they're, but listen, God has equipped us. He's equipped us with his spirit. He's equipped us with his word. He's equipped us with his presence. He's equipped us with, with who he is. He's equipped us with John chapter 5. So we can honor him. By pointing others to him. I love what John the baptizer said. He must increase. I must decrease. I must turn the volume down of myself. And turn the volume up of Jesus in my life. And I love that. And I love that John the baptizer was completely 100% good with. I'm okay with just being known as a voice. A voice that pointed others to Jesus. And if you're here today and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. Perhaps you have, you, you are, or have placed your hope in something other than Jesus for your forgiveness and for your salvation and for a relationship with him. He is lovingly pursuing you today through his word. And he is communicating that there is life and life only through a relationship with him. So maybe today is the day that you begin that most important decision, the most important decision you will ever make in your life. And that is to acknowledge your brokenness, to change your mind about your sin and to trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. He is worthy. He is worthy. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this, this word. I thank you for John chapter five. I thank you, God, that, that in these few verses, you have provided overwhelming evidence to the truth that Jesus, that you are God and that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting 
life. God, you didn't have to reveal yourself to us. We don't deserve it. You owe us nothing, but in your grace, you pursue us. You're pursuing these religious leaders in the text, revealing who you are, the life that is found in you. So God, as believers, help us to never get over the fact that you have revealed yourself to us and have granted us life through a life-giving relationship with you. And God, I pray for those who may be here today or listening in online that have been placing their hope for life in other things, in their own works or in a relationship or in doing better. God, we all fall short of your glory. And so I pray today would be the day that they would repent of their sin and place their trust in Jesus. God, you are worthy. You are worthy. You are worthy. God, I pray that you would find us sensitive and obedient to your word today. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.